Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who guides us into all truth, and we ask now, Lord, that your spirit would just come upon us to guide us into all truth now, that we could just sit at your feet and read your words that were penned many years ago, words that aren't necessarily familiar to us, but words that nonetheless come from you. And so, Lord, we ask that they would be fresh to us today and that you would guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can turn to Joel chapter 1, if you would. As you're doing that, I do have another announcement that I wanted to, um, to make uh, while we're being recorded, and because uh, it's somewhat official. Everybody ready for official news? I am reading the uh, Certificate of Amendment from the Office of the Secretary of State of Indiana. Like that so far? Sounds like we're in law school or something, doesn't it? All right. I, Diego Morales, raise your hand prior to this moment you knew who the Secretary of State of Indiana was. Okay, so a couple politicians. All right. Uh, Secretary of State hereby certify that articles of amendment of the above domestic nonprofit corporation, which was Cornerstone Community Fellowship at Madison, Inc., have been presented to me at my office, accompanied by the fees prescribed by law, and that, that the documentation presented conforms to law as prescribed by the provisions of the Indiana Code. The name following said transaction will be Calvary Chapel of Madison, Indiana, Inc. So, That's applause for me um, being a very marginal lawyer. Uh, so uh, I say this just as a matter of announcement. So I mentioned this a few weeks back when we were starting this process, and uh, here's the deal. There are two kinds of people in the world, those that recognize Calvary Chapel and those that don't. There are lots of two kinds of people categories in the world, but anyway, uh, those that recognize Calvary Chapel and those that don't. Calvary Chapel, let me, I want to be clear, and this is why I wanted to make this on record. Calvary Chapel is not a denomination. Calvary Chapel is sort of a family of churches, okay? If you are familiar with Calvary Chapel, then you know that with that name means something. And what it means is we adhere to a certain pretty limited number, frankly, of core values. Basically, uh, we, teach the chap we teach the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, beginning to end. And that's really the, 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 probably the biggest one. The other is uh, we believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are alive today. Uh, we're not necessarily a charismatic church uh, in and of itself, but we believe that those uh, gifts are alive and well today and um, to be used according to the context of Scripture. And that's basically the tenets of uh, what it means to be a Calvary Chapel church. There are other sort of, um, sort of secondary pieces, but that's the biggest one. You may say, well, why does it matter? Well, 
or let me, you may say, why have we not always been a Calvary Chapel named church? Well, honestly, when, we, when this church first began, uh, the Calvary Chapel family of churches was at a little bit of a, of a crossroads and, and there were some things that honestly, as a pastor, I wasn't sure about the direction. And now I feel comfortable with the direction. That's one piece. Number, second piece, honestly, in Madison, Indiana, pretty much nobody knew or cared anything about Calvary Chapel, by and large. Uh, a few people did, and those people were able to sort of figure it out. Uh, so that's kind of why we, we felt like at the time, uh, Cornerstone Community Fellowship was a more appropriate name for the church. As time has gone on, so the next question is, why does it matter? Well, as time has gone on, um, it's a very fascinating dynamic. I, I don't, there's lots of variables, but there have been lots of people that move into Madison, Indiana in the last couple of years that have come from outside places, uh, Raise your, hand if you, raise your hand if you're new to Madison, Indiana in the, in the last three years. Decent number of people, okay? And so um, we're all the time running into people like that that are, that are new, and you come to a new town, and you might say, I want to find a church that teaches the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so you might Google Calvary Chapel churches near me. And we've actually had this come up uh, where people have come to this town, looked for that type of church, and not been able to find it, okay? And so all we're doing is, is, is sort of, in a sense, declaring who we are uh, by our name. Uh, if you sit here Sunday after Sunday, you'll notice there will be nothing new except a sign, okay? Um, and uh, if you write a check, you can write a check to Calvary Chapel, Madison. Um, but other than that, there's really nothing new that is going to happen here. We're just sort of, um, sort of making it a little easier to figure out who we are. Okay, does that make sense? And so I uh, hope you know, um, if you've been around for a while, you do know this. Uh, I'm never very strategic or um, uh, I don't try too hard to grow the church. I think that Jesus said that he'll build his church. Upon this rock, he'll build his church. And so that's his, that's his business, and it's clearly not mine or anybody else's. And so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm almost like um, uh, reluctant, almost to the point of resistant, of doing anything that would be man's attempt to grow the church. And honestly, I've even probably frustrated some people in that regard over the years. But that's kind of who we are. However... I think it's probably okay to let them know we're here. <laughs> and so that's kind of what we're doing, okay? Yes, we're a church. Yes, we're this kind of church. Um, you know, you're driving by and you're like, boy, it makes me feel vulnerable to walk down that long hallway. Like, I want to know what kind of church it is before I walk down that long hallway to that church, right? And so we're just making it a little easier for, for everybody. Fair enough? And if you have any questions on that... Um, just feel free to ask me. My name's Nate Murphy. I'll answer anything you want to know. All right. Joel chapter 1. Unless you just want to say, that's awesome. Thanks for doing that. Then I'm Scott Murphy. 
So Joel, you know, now we're in the, uh, what's known as the minor prophets, the, the prophets uh, after Daniel and all the way to the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, uh, were known as the minor prophets, not because they're any less significant or any less spiritual, but just because the books are shorter. And so uh, today we start a new one of these, these guys, it's Joel, uh, and we're going to read today chapters 1, and there's a natural break, uh, there's three chapters. There's a natural break in the dialogue uh, between verse 27 and 28 of chapter 2. So we're going to read down, Lord willing, to uh, chapter 2, verse 27 uh, this morning. Joel was a prophet probably during the time of Joash, uh, the king of Judah. Now, you may or may not care, but... Again, uh, let me review, after the reign of King Solomon, the nation was divided into the northern half, well, the northern part that's called the kingdom of Israel, the southern part that was called the kingdom of Judah, and as we track prophets and kings and all these folks, uh, sometimes it's helpful to know the the cultural setting, and whether it's the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, the the southern kingdom had a little bit more uh, spiritual sensitivity, not a lot, but a little bit. And so uh, there's some distinguishing features there. And then as, if you read through the book of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you'd notice that during the reign of different kings, the land seemed to have, uh, or the, the nation seemed to either follow a better course or a lesser course uh, accordingly. So sometimes it's helpful uh, to put these into a historical context. The interesting thing about Joel is we don't know really anything about him. And so there's some speculation by commentators, and I'll just say this. Probably he was prophesying in the southern kingdom of Judah uh, rather than the northern kingdom of Israel. Reasons for that are that there's a mention of, of Jerusalem, of Zion, of the temple. Those would have all been in the southern kingdom. Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, there's no mention of a king. For this book, so we don't really know when. Some commentators say that probably it was therefore during the reign of Joash. Now, Joash is an interesting story. I think. Do you want to hear it? That's better than average. Thank you. That is way better than average. Warms my heart. So, uh, remember Ahab and Jezebel? Good or bad? Bad. Bad or horrible bad? Horrible Horrible bad. Would you name your kid Jezebel? Don't do it. Um, They had a daughter. Her name is Athaliah. Would you name your kid Athaliah? No way. No way. Athaliah uh, was their daughter. She was married to uh, the son of Jehoshaphat, uh, king of Judah. Um, Jehoshaphat was a good king but had bad alliances namely by marriage and by friendship uh, with the family of Ahab. Anyway, uh, Athaliah had a son named Ahaziah, okay? If you ever get these mixed up, if you ever, like if you're taking a uh, Old Testament history quiz, right? If you like have bad handwriting, it's a blue book, right? Essay test. You have a bad handwriting, you just write uh, A and then like, kind of illegible for a little bit, and then A-H, you're going to get the right answer. The blue book reader will think you're awesome, okay? So Athaliah had a son, Ahaziah, 
they were uh, Ahaziah was killed. When he was killed, his mama, Athaliah, was pretty upset. And so she took matters into her own hands and she killed all the royal line. Basically, her kids and grandkids. Except one kid was stolen away and hidden, and that was Joash. And Joash was, was hidden by his aunt Jehosheba and Jehoiada the priest. Are you still glad you asked for this story? And so basically, they bring Joash in at, I think, seven years of age, crown him king, kill Athaliah, uh, all while Jehoiada, the priest, is basically in charge. Okay? So you've got a guy that's ruling that's not really... And why does it matter, by the way? This is important. Why does it matter? Because God told King David, you're going to always have a person in your line that's on the throne. Now that is fulfilled in the near term, biologically, and in the long term, because David's uh, descendant was none other than Jesus Christ, who will always be on the throne, right? And so that's that prophetic piece. But in the short-term piece, uh, short-term prophetic piece, uh, the line of, of David's uh, lineage was almost cut off by Athaliah. But this guy, Joash, uh, even though he's seven years old, probably not able to make good, um, you know, political decisions, though, I don't know. Maybe we could try that. Uh, but anyway, uh, during that time, Jehoiada was basically uh, running the kingdom. Okay? So, for all those reasons, um, uh, it's thought that Joel, Joel was written during the time of, of Joash. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. So the only other thing we know about Joel is his father's name was Pethuel. You don't know who Pethuel was? No, you don't. You're lying now. Uh, nobody knows anything about Pethuel, so you're welcome. I won't embellish anything about Pethuel. So uh, Pethuel was just a guy that is dead. Now, we do, you know, it's interesting. The name Joel means the Lord is God. So Pethuel didn't name his kid Ahab, right? Named his kid Joel. The Lord is God. So probably there's some sort of at least godly upbringing to some extent. And the only other thing we know about that I think we, I want to not miss is that Joel is telling us what? The word of the Lord. So really it doesn't matter who wrote it, right? Or, or who Joel was because this is the word of the Lord. We're talking on Wednesday night, right? Uh, there's always this debate about who wrote the book of Hebrews. Well, who wrote the book of Hebrews? The Holy Spirit wrote the book of Hebrews. Whether he used the pen of somebody or somebody else, really doesn't matter. And in the, same, in the same way, Joel, you know, doesn't matter much who he was. We just know that uh, he's telling us the word of the Lord. So he goes on. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. And so here's the situation. Here's the context. There has been a relentless famine in the land brought on by locusts. Now you think, 
What's that got to do with anything biblical? Right? But keep in mind, this is an agrarian society. They are dependent upon farming completely. Not just their food, their provision, you know, all the layers of their economy, of their society, really everything. And we're going to actually kind of see some of that even as it, as it describes it played out. But, um, you know, a, a pestilence of locusts to that nation at that time, it would have, wouldn't spare the rich, wouldn't spare the privileged, right? Everybody's the same, uh, on the same playing field as far as being vulnerable uh, when, a, when a plague like this uh, ravages the land. And so, um, really, they're all devastated. And apparently, this is so severe, it says, you know, has anything like this ever happened in your days? Ask your, ask your parents, has this, has this anything ever happened? No, nothing like this has been this severe before. And you know, without getting too tangential, situations like this do have spiritual implications, okay? We just came through a pandemic, right? That ha- Let me just say this. That has hugely, hugely spiritual implications. We say, how does that work out? Well, how did man-made solution, and I'm not, I'm going to try hard not to go off the rails here. How, do, how did man-made solutions work out in eradicating that COVID pandemic? I'm a doctor. I think pretty much Zip right? Well, you say, well, that's because of uh, this political party. We had the privilege of having it uh, uh, dealt with by two, frankly, polar opposite uh, presidential administrations, right? And how did either one of them do? Pretty much the same, right? That should cause us to look up. Okay, and here's where we as a society, and I think we as Christians have an opportunity. Christians as, opportun- as an opportunity, let me just say this. So let's say, let's, let's say we're all sitting around being, you know, the evaluators and the, and the um, critics of, of how COVID was dealt with in America, right? How easy is it to say, well, it's that guy's fault or it's that guy's fault or it's that guy's fault, Right? And what do you have in America? What have you had in America for the last three years? You know, a bunch of these guys over to on the right saying it's those guys' fault, a bunch of guys over on the right, on the left saying it's those guys' fault, and a bunch of this and a bunch of that. And, you know, we got maskers and anti-maskers. We got vaxxers and anti-vaxxers. We got this and an anti-this of everything, right? Wouldn't it be awesome to say, you know what? There's just some things in life that human beings don't have a good answer for. And that should cause us to look where? Up. That should just simply cause us to look up. And if I could encourage us as a church, I, I, and, and honestly, in my opinion, you guys did awesome at uh, sort of navigating that um, as best we could, right? 
and we have different opinions of all of that even within this room and I'm, and I'm thankful for that and I'm aware of that. But I think if I could just encourage us and particularly as time marches on, you know, probably won't be the last opportunity we have to look up rather than to point fingers at one another in our life, maybe socially, maybe economically, maybe politically, maybe pandemically, right? We will always have opportunity to either point fingers and critique one another or look up and say, you know what? Man has limitations. Man has limitations. Worldly knowledge has limitations. Worldly technology has limitations. I am a walking testimony that medical knowledge has limitations, right? It's just the reality, and we are, we are, we're at the same time arrogant and naive when we think that man has solutions for everything. So, you're an agrarian society, you just came through a crazy, I mean, if you take this literally, you, a crazy four-wave thing of locusts, right? And there's basically nothing left. You got to look up or you got you to do something. And so, one thing he says, verse, verse 5, Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine. For it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste to my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. And so, you know, first thing he says is wake up. Wake up, drunkards. Now, that could be literally drunkards. And by the way... You know, he would say to those people, by the way, if you're a drunkard, you're going to wake up because the, vine, the grapes are all gone. <laughs> the grapes just got eaten by locusts. There's a bunch of drunk locusts laying around, but that doesn't do you any good, right? So your wine's been cut off. Your fig tree's been cut off. Awake, you drunkards. I think, I think there's a broader context. I think we can be spiritually drunk. You know, again, you know, the times we've been through in the last few years, maybe it's just that I'm getting a little bit older. Um, maybe, I don't know what it is. But, you know, it does seem like more and more uh, we're, in, we're in delicate times, right? I mean, regardless of where what you think about, uh, you know, is are we approaching the end of time is Jesus coming back or you know could he come back tomorrow by the way biblically prophetically is it possible he can come back tomorrow absolutely have there been folks in seasons of life and seasons of history way before us that have felt the same way yeah so maybe maybe not but I will say this in my life I've never felt more of a time that I would say it is time to awake and be sober. 
I can never think of a time in my life, again, maybe it's just me, and I'm willing to admit that, I've never encountered a time in my life where I feel like, wow, it is time to not play around. I do not have time to play around. I do not have time to waste on my own sinful indulgences. I do not have time to get drunk. I do not have time. I do not have the, the uh, I don't have the margin. First Peter chapter 5 says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, if I stood up here and I said, hey, I got this new pet. I just got this new pet cat I want to share with you all, right? And I walk back here, you know, behind the door over here and, uh, you know, bring out this lion and, like, turn him loose, right? Would you be alert? You'd be gone. <laughs> People say, I didn't know Jerry could run that fast. <laughs> You'd be on your game, right? And yet, are we sober? Are we vigilant? Like, what does vigilant mean? Vigilant means, I mean, God is in control, right? I, it's not all about me. But as much as depends on me, I'm on my A game. Why? Because it's time. It's time. This is not, uh, this is not time to play around. And here's the thing. Has it ever been time to play around? No. That's why, you know, just like I say, well, Jesus could come back tomorrow. Yeah, he could. Is it time to not play around? It's time to not play around because it's never been time to play around. And so we're supposed to be sober, be vigilant, because our adversary walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I guarantee you, if I brought my pet lion out here, and half of you ran, and half of you were sleeping. Maybe sleeping with like a raw ribeye steak laying across your forehead, right, or your chest. You're probably vulnerable, right? And so, you know, there's always a remnant. There's always a remnant of faithful, and we need to be those people. Think about this. We live in an unstable time. I don't mean for this to be a downer. It's okay if I'm, remember, I'm telling us to look up. Looking up is always an upper, right? Okay. But if I were a doomsdayer, I might say stuff like this. We have an insecure economy, do we not? We're about, I think by the end of this month, going to have another showdown on a debt ceiling. <laughs> really? We did that, do we do that in June? Time for our quarterly debt, uh, debt ceiling showdown, right? I'm gonna say we've got an unstable economy. Can I say that we've got a little bit of an insecure national and international political situation? Can I say that? Can I say we've got some insecure social divides in our society today? Yeah, I, I think I can say that. Regardless of what you think about this, can some of us at least say, because this is 
a little bit charged. Can we say we've got an insecure environment, some people might say? This is a great time to be sober. It's a great time to look up. Now, if I were doomsday, I would have like just camped out on all that stuff, right? But you know what I am? And you can ask anybody. I am, you can ask my family. I am an optimist, right? Like we're in Cincinnati, we got to be at Louisville in a half an hour. And I say, I think we can make it. <laughs> my kids always tease me about that. And guess what? And never mind, I won't argue about it. <laughs> The, 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 the data is a little sketchy on their end, so I'm not going to tempt them to like, argue with me about whether we actually make it there in time and stuff like that, right? But, you know, I'm an optimist. I'm an optimist. Why am I an optimist? In the midst of so much instability, I mean, it feels like there's a part of me that wishes I'd have been a you know, an adult in the 60s, right? I was a small child in the 60s, too young to know what was going on. But there's, it's, it's almost like, I think maybe this feels like what that would have felt like, right? Maybe if you're older, you might weigh in on that. But to me, it's like, man, this is, this is these are times. This is like locust time. And yet, we are here right? We were born the day we were born for such a time as this. I believe God divinely knit us together in our mother's womb on the day that it happened, and we were born on the day that it happened, and we're alive, not all the same age, but we're alive to be here today. I think this is divinely orchestrated, right? God does stuff like that, right? And all the while, I am super optimistic because God is on the throne. Do I freak out about the environment? No. Do I freak out about the economy? No. Do I freak out about the pandemic? No. When it's my time to go, it's my time to go. Right? And who's on the throne? God. Who's king? God. Who's the treasury secretary? God. Right? Who orchestrates history and has encountered problems bigger than ours today? God. Who sent his son to die on a cross for me to save me from my sin problem, which is, at least as it relates to me, a bigger problem than everything I've just articulated so far? God. He's that personal. He's that big, and he's that personal. And we need, to, we need to never forget that. So, he calls the drunkards to wake up because the wine got eaten by the locusts. Lament, verse 8. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the, uns, for the husband of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering has been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. The field is wasted. The land mourns. The grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has 
perished. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. So again, we see the far-reaching implications of, of uh, uh, a locust famine like this, right? It's like uh, an engage, it says the virgin girded with sackcloth, like, like, a, like, an, like an engaged woman waiting for her husband. Now she's girded with sackcloth, which was like a, think of like a burlap uh, cloth. It was like um, uh, deliberately uncomfortable because it was a sign of mourning, right? Because her husband uh, got killed, right? That would be, that would be hard. Uh, the drink offerings, the grain offerings, even the, the locusts have affected uh, the temple worship, right? Because you need drink offerings and grain offerings. That's gone. You see the barley, the wheat, the vineyards, the figs, the pomegranates, the palms, the apples, all the trees, they're gone. It's very far-reaching. It affects all aspects of society. And here's the thing. When God, we need, we need God-sized solutions because we can, never, we can never plug the holes of all the damaged spots that something like a locust plague could, could cause. And we live in a society even today we might think, well, we're, you know, we're way too civilized to suffer through a locust plague. I think we might have said that about a virus a few years ago. We're way too sophisticated for that. We got, you know, we got, we got medicine. We got a uh, medical system. We got big pharma. They'll take care of us. So, Verse 13, gird yourselves and lament, you priests, wail, you who minister before the altar, come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. So again, you know, God's calling his people to respond with humility. He says, gird yourselves and lament. And notice who he wants to lead the way in humility, you priests. He wants the spiritual leaders to lead the way in humility. And again, this is, you know, this is a, a, a bit sobering to me as a pastor, right? I got I to gotta not be necessarily more spiritual than anybody else because I don't pretend to be. But I got to be at least a guy that knows how to be humble when I need to be humble. I need to be a guy that sees... Uh, uh, social challenge and be able to look up and we need to encourage one another in that in that direction if the religious leaders of our day are not humble before God the people are in trouble the people are in trouble he says consecrate a fast call a sacred assembly verse 14 gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord now, again, we're not in a, in a locust famine. But, you know, if there was ever a time when uh, there's maybe a social or a national or a worldwide uh, challenge, and again, you know, the pandemic is a pretty, uh, frankly, it's a pretty tangible um, comparison to this uh, locust situation, at least in our society, right? Something that we're all familiar with. We all understand it. We all have uh, been through it. So what should we do in that kind of situation? 
Number one, we should consecrate a fast. Consecrate, the word means to dedicate or to purify. And what's a fast? It's an attitude of prayer that takes priority over my physical needs. Whether it's a fast from all food, whether it's a fast from, you know, some people take a fast from media. Some people take a fast from certain foods. You know, you could take a fast from anything, right? But it's to dedicate or to purify. The idea is I want to seek the Lord more than the satisfaction of my flesh, right? That's a reasonable thing to do during a locust uh, famine, right? That's a reasonable thing to do during a COVID pandemic, right? To set apart, to set aside a time of prayer, to seek the Lord, to call a sacred assembly and gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and to cry out to the Lord. So I'm preaching to the choir a little bit, but... I hope that being here strengthens your faith. Now, that may be a straightforward statement, but Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1, I believe it is. I'm not going to butcher it. Yeah, my pages don't want to turn there. Proverbs 18, verse 1. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. Can I tell you this? This is not a plug for church attendance. That's not really how I, how I operate. But I'll tell you this, it's a plug for iron sharpens iron, right? He who walks with wise men will be wise. A man who isolates himself rages against all wise judgment, right? We need fellowship. What does he say during the time of a famine, right? He says, consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. That's what we're doing here, a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. You know what? It's pretty much what we've done this morning, right? It's what we're doing. And we're seeing that that's what's been done for centuries. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. And so uh, God calls this the day of the Lord. This is a common phrase in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. You might hear, see this as you read through right? It's mentioned 16 times in the Old Testament, eight times in the New Testament, five times in the, in the book of Joel. So it's kind of a recurrent theme here in the book of Joel, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And generally, the day of the Lord speaks of a time of, of judgment by God and a call to repentance. Now you may say, that seems harsh, right? Well, sometimes people need to be awakened to look up, right? Now, God's smarter than we are. He knows how that works. And sometimes people need to be wakened. Wouldn't it be awesome? Just dream, dream with me for a minute. Wouldn't it be awesome if we never got fat and sassy and complacent in our faith 
And we never really needed to be awakened. Never had to worry about repentance. You know, okay, I, I'm a, I was born a sinner. I get that. I need to repent before God. I'm saved. All that. But then, you know, then as far as our daily lives, you know, I'm just loving the Lord, serving Him, you know, trying to read His Word, obey His Word by the power of the Holy Spirit as best I can. And I never really need to be wakened up because I'm never really complacent, chilling in my faith. Wouldn't that be great? Raise your hand if that's you. Well, the rest of us need to be wakened up once in a while, right? And so that's kind of how this works. And the day of the Lord is really sort of an awakening time. It's a, it's a time of, of God's uh, discipline, just like a loving father disciplines his child at times. And sometimes we all have to go through that. The idea, ultimately, uh, if you carry this out in, through the New Testament, the day of the Lord uh, is a reference to the great tribulation uh, and if you've been with us when we talked about sort of end times events, uh, the Great Tribulation will be definitely a time of judgment that will be uh, referred to as the Day of the Lord. In this case, you know, the, the idea is that the locusts were, uh, because he's calling this a Day of the Lord, the locust plague was really uh, God's warning to his people. And we've got to be careful a little bit, you know, can I stand here and say in our society COVID was God's judgment on his people? I would never say that, right? All I would say is if it causes me to wake up, if it causes us to wake up, to look up, then all right, bring it on. So be it. But, you know, God, God does what he does. And uh, sometimes it's clear uh, in the context of Scripture, and sometimes it's not so easy to, to discern. But uh, in this case, uh, the locust plague is the day of the Lord. We, we read that as, as uh, God's, God's discipline. Verse 16, Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, storehouses are in shambles, barns are broken down, for the grain is withered, how the animals groan, the herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture, even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. So you read this and you're like, wow, you know, disaster has a ripple effect. Not only is the vegetation gone, but now the livestock, uh, you know, the, 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 the working livestock like the oxen, you know, our tractors, if you will, they're, they're starving to death, as well as our meat livestock, our milk livestock, they're all, they're all starving to death. O Lord, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up, a fire has devoured the open pastures. So Joel's response is to cry out to God. That's what we should do. These kind of situations are a bad time to look exclusively to man's wisdom for solutions. Now, does man's wisdom, do we need to use man's wisdom as much as we can? Absolutely. But to look exclusively as man's wisdom is short-sighted. Kind of a pick-me-up book, don't you think? Everybody pretty? Mm -hmm. Chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion, he says, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, 
a day of clouds and thick darkness like the morning clouds spread over the mountains, a people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. And so now Joel's move into another, quote, day of the Lord that is coming. Instead of locusts, this is going to be, see what he says here, a people, uh, a people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them. So he's talking about soldiers. Most commentators say this refers to the Assyrian Empire. So again, um, northern kingdom of, of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., Uh, A little while later, after they did that, they started to move into the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah. They ravaged most of the land of the southern kingdom of Judah. You may remember the story. And then they came to Jerusalem. They surrounded Jerusalem and um, besieged it, right? Tried to starve the city out. Hezekiah was the king at that time. Isaiah was the prophet speaking to Hezekiah at the time. And long story short, uh, they'd, they'd already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They'd conquered much of the southern kingdom of Judah. But Jerusalem was the last stronghold left uh, under the recommendation of Isaiah and the wisdom of Hezekiah. The people prayed. They sought the Lord. They asked him to deal with these soldiers that had the city surrounded. And they woke up one day, and it says an angel of the Lord had killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night right and so God took care of them right much damage had been done but God took care of them and so Joel is is warning of of that that time that's coming and uh, he says you know God's warnings are a call for repentance and for crying out to God and that's what he's that's what he's looking for here it says, verse 3, a fire devours before them and, f- a f- and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them and behind a desolate wilderness. So it's kind of like he's, he's giving us this picture. When the Assyrians come in, they come in like, they come in like, a, you know, like a bulldozer, right? And like, it looks like the Garden of Eden be- in front of them. And by the time they're done, uh, everything behind them looks like a desert, desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like swift steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops, they leap like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. And so uh, when they came in, they came in destructive. They left lots of desolate wilderness. Verse 6. Before them, the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter all the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, who can endure it? And so again, uh, another reference to the day of the Lord that the Assyrians are going to come and they're going to bring God's discipline. It's really like Joel is saying, hey, if you thought the locusts were bad, the Assyrians are coming, and it's going to be worse. Is it possible that we could go through something worse than COVID? It's possible. What do we need to do if that happens? 
Well, he says, now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. That'd be a good thing to do, right? Even if disaster doesn't come. But with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Let me tell you what not to do during times of disaster. And I want to say this loud and clear. Let me tell us, let me tell me what not to do during times of disaster, or maybe even not during times of disaster. Give God religious lip service. Don't give God religious lip service. There's a long history, in, particularly in the Old Testament, of people giving God religious lip service and, you know, ceremony. And the idea here is rend your heart and not your garments, right? Like they had this, you know, the Jewish, you, you may know, this Jewish custom, right? If there was a time of mourning or humility or something like that, we would tear our clothing, right? And God's like, quit tearing your clothing. Maybe tear your heart. Maybe have some genuine humility. Maybe don't play religious games. Maybe be sober, be vigilant for your enemy, the, the, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Maybe don't play uh, religious lip service with our flesh. Maybe it's a great time to be awake. So rend your hearts, not your, gar- your, not your garments. Return to the Lord. And why do we return to the Lord, by the way? Because he's mad at us? No. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. You know, one of the great misfortunes in the world today is that people have a misunderstanding of who God is. And honestly, sometimes they have a misunderstanding based on God's people. And we need to be careful to rightly represent God. But God is not mad. God is not waiting for an opportunity to spank us. God's just calling out to his people. Whosoever will come, he would say. He says, you know, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, and he relents from doing harm. He does not want anyone to perish but that all would come to salvation. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. So notice this. If you look back at uh, chapter 1, verse 14, this is almost the same, right? He's saying during the locust plague, you know what you should do? You should consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather everybody together. In the times of the Assyrians, you know what you should do? You should blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, right? The only difference between this one and the, and the locust one is this one now involves blow the trumpet in Zion. The trumpet was a, was a call to warfare, right? He's saying, you know, uh, call the people to warfare, gather them together, consecrate a fast, be humble. Humbly seek the Lord. And then he says, sanctify the congregation. You know what sanctify the congregation means? Take out the trash. 
Take out the trash. Take out the trash. Sometimes a part of wakening up, right? If God would call us to wake up, uh, to be sober, to be vigilant, sometimes that means there's some trash that needs to go out, right? If your house stinks, it's time to take out the trash, right? A young child uh, earlier during the break who likes to um, bait me for good humor asked me, what do the right eye say to the left eye? Something smells in between us, right? I thought that was timely for this morning, right? Sometimes you need to take out the trash. What's he say? He says, sanctify the congregation. Sanctify means set apart. Set apart. We're supposed to live differently than, than unbelievers, right? If an unbeliever lives for himself, satisfies his flesh, it's all he cares about, it's all that matters, frankly, I get it. That makes sense. That's consistent. If a believer says, yeah, I trust God, I love God, I serve God, but I also like this and that, and, and I know it's contrary to what I'm supposed to be doing, but, you know, whatever, it's no big deal. And I'm going to live my life for myself, but I also kind of want a little fire insurance because I don't want to go to hell. And so I think I'm, think, sign me up, I want that, but, you know, I really want to just kind of be in control of my own life and, and have my own fun and create my own destiny and do all of that, right? I don't get that. That's inconsistent, right? The unbeliever that lives like that totally makes sense, right? But God would, God would tell us, sanctify the congregation. Sometimes we need to take the trash out. I like what else he says here. He says, assemble the elders, gather the children, nursing babies, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber, the bride from her dressing room. Basically, gather everybody. Children, engaged people, young people. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to, re to reproach that the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? And so again, you know, God has a little bit of a reputation in the world based on how his people uh, respond to, to him. And so, you know, if we're people that live marginally, uh, the world kind of notices that. Again, we're not supposed to necessarily be pious or arrogant or self-righteous. We're just supposed to follow the Lord in humility. Verse 18, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will be zealous and pity his people. And so notice the, the then in verse 18 comes after the people repent. And last week, remember, we said when we choose to walk in sin, we always underestimate its consequences. When we choose to repent, we tend to underestimate the healing and blessing that God can bring. God loves to bring healing and blessing to his children who repent. The Lord will answer, verse 19, the Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you'll be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. So God is able and willing and wants to heal this land, right? The land of Judah that uh, has been ravaged by the locusts. God wants to heal them, but he's, but he's only going to do it 
as a part of you know the response to their repentance The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you'll be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove from far from you the northern army. That would be the Assyrian army that we're talking about. And will drive them away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because of the, he has done monstrous things. So God was going to deal with the Assyrians uh, ultimately by the angel. Verse 21, fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. And so as much destruction as we read about in chapter 1 caused by these locusts, God is able to bring that much bounty when they repent, right? So how often do we see this? We see God brings challenge. We could call it judgment if you want. We could call it discipline. God brings challenge enough to cause us to look up. We look up. We repent. God blesses, right? Now, God doesn't always bless in the way we define, but God blesses in the way he defines, which is better. We just have to trust him in that. Verse 25, So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust. My great army which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. So, you know there's a thing about time. When time is gone, it's gone, right? And sometimes in life, uh, we can live in a way that we will, might have time where we look back and have regrets, right? I won't ask for a show of hands, but probably, you know, we all have regrets. Some big, some little, some with consequence, some with less or more consequence. But, you know, we all have times where we look back and we might say, oh, man, I wish I'd have done it this way or whatever can I encourage you? God is able to restore to you the, le- the years that the swarming locust has eaten. He's able to restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Somehow, and, and only God can do this, somehow God can make beauty for ashes. Somehow God can take our mess-ups and turn those into victories and turn them into victories that we can rejoice and give Him thanks for. And so we don't always know how it works, but he can do that. And then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. So what's this all about? It's all about the relationship between God and his people. God loves his people. God loves his people. God wants to bless his people. 
But God doesn't bless rebellion. God doesn't bless neglect. God loves to bless thankful people. He loves to bless repentant people. He loves to bless physically. He loves to bless spiritually. He loves to bless above and beyond all we could ask or think, Ephesians tells us. And so all, this is all about the relationship that we will know that there's a God in Israel. In our case, that we will know there's a God uh, in our lives today. He says, I am the Lord and there's no other. You know, if we know God for who he is, we don't need anything else or anyone else. So God loves you. He wants to have fellowship with you. He wants to bless you. And whether it's past, present, or future, if we ever find ourselves in a difficult personal or social situation, yeah, maybe, you know, there's some earthly things we need to do, maybe some business we need to take care of, but ultimately we need to look to him. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the one who holds us together. He holds the whole world together. He can hold us together, right? And he is the one we look to. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're in control of all things. And Lord, even though we don't fully understand all the, all the reasons at times, we know that we go through hard times, individually and collectively. And Lord, we ask that when we go through those times, we would look to you. That we would humble ourselves. That we would wake up if we're asleep. That we would um, be sober. That we would be vigilant. That we would gather together. That we would pray. And Lord, we thank you that you reach out to us. We thank you that you care enough to preserve a relationship with us. And Lord, we ask that you just continue to have your way with us and guide us and lead us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.